In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As we advance during this Advent season, we are all confronted by perhaps what might one might call the externalism or the distortions to which Advent and the Christmas season are increasingly subject in our modern world. And we see all the lights outside, the Christmas trees, perhaps the Santa Claus parade, which I think was canceled this year. But we are awakening to a deeper desire to have an authentic experience of what Advent is really all about, an experience that is based on faith. And there's a kind of unsatisfactory nature to the Christianist mood, the feelings, however good and exquisite, even the music can can rub you the wrong way if you've heard it too often in the shopping malls, <laughs> especially if it's uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And, um, and that's why as we come here to pray, to Lindcroft, we yearn again for the heart of the matter, to get really at the root of what Advent is really about, so that we might have truly a strong and solid nourishment for the spirit of which only a glimmer is left for us now in the in all these external pious sentiments which is what we call the joyous season of christmas with all the flashy colors and lights in the in the streets We've come here for the heart of Advent. What really is the heart of Advent? What does it really mean? For example, the very word, Advent, what does it mean? Well, Advent does not, for example, mean expectation. We are waiting for Christmas, and so some people think Advent means expectation. But in fact, Advent, Adventus in Latin, is a translation of the Greek. And the Greek is parousia, parousia, which means, well, it kind of sounds similar in English, but it really means presence, parousia, presence. But more accurately, it means arrival, arrival. Or when you arrive, what happens? You begin a presence, you're present. Not like present, like gifts, but presence. And in antiquity, the word was a technical term that was used for the presence of a, of a king or the presence of a ruler. 
and even of a, of a God that was worshipped, who bestows upon his devotees the time of his parousia, the time of his advent. So, Advent means a presence that has begun. And we know it means the presence of God himself. The presence of God himself. And therefore, Advent reminds us, I would say, two things. Two things. First, it reminds us that God's presence in the world has already begun. God is present in the world even if that presence is hidden. It's a hidden presence. So, the first thing is that God's presence has begun. But the second is that His presence has only, it's just only begun, and yet it is not full and complete. It's just beginning. Meaning that that presence is in a state of development. It's in a state of becoming. It's in a state of maturing to its full form. Like a building that is being constructed. You can see there's a building there. You can see the scaffolding. You can see the pillars. You can see the workers. There's a building there, but you can't actually live in it yet, fully. So in the same way, his presence has already begun, and we, the faithful, are the ones through whom he wishes to be present in the world. He wishes to be present in the world in a particular way, through your smile, your goodness, your warmth, your spirit of service, and, and so many other ways in which he wants to be present. But it's, all those, those are all good things to do, but especially he wants to be present through our faith, through our hope, and through our love, the three theological virtues. And through those three virtues, he wants his light to shine over and over again in the kind of darkness that is the world. When people see a woman of faith, when they see a woman that is filled with hope, not just about the future, but about the meaning of her life, and that she can do things deeply imbued with a sense of love of God. She does things not just because of some human excitement, but because she loves God. That, that fills people with well, it fills people with, with light. And of course, in Advent, he is present, particularly as a child. But he will be present in his fullness when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's what we say at the very, right, at the very end of the, of the creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. But that doesn't mean he's not present now. If he will come again, to judge the living and dead, that means he's already here, present, but hidden. Kind of hidden from view. He's not obvious. And we need faith to see him. But that doesn't mean he's not there. We just need, we just need faith. 
But just because we need faith does not mean he is an illusion, does not mean he is not there. It does not mean he is any less real. But his real and evident presence at the end of time, well, there we won't need any faith. Nobody will need faith to see him because it will be like inescapable. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, when he appears there at the end of time, the fruit of that presence will be so so clear, he'll come to separate the wheat from the chaff. We say the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. And he will come as judge. And, well, this is already what John the Baptist was kind of expecting that Jesus would do. Remember the figure of John the Baptist. This is a very central figure in, in uh, Advent, right? And, uh, and, well, it's funny, you know, J- John the Baptist, he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, but there's one who's coming after me, who I am not worthy even to untie his sandal. So get ready. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Everybody's going, oh my God, oh my God. He's going to come. He says, you're going to see. He's going to come in. Right? And um, he had this deep conviction that the presence of God was going to begin in the world and everybody was going to see it and it was going to be like tremendous. And so that's why he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But as we know from the Gospel, John the Baptist, what happens? Well, he's thrown into prison. <laughs> the guy's thrown into prison. A dark, dingy cell. And uh, as far as I recall, he didn't even get a visit from Jesus. But he got a visit from his disciples. who went to visit him. And he sends them, his disciples, to go to Jesus with a very puzzling question. He says, tell Jesus, are you really he or him, or should we wait for another? It's kind of a weird question, because here he is, he's saying, here comes the Lamb of God, and then he's kind of going, um, are you, are you sure you're the one? Because I was expecting a little bit more drama. I was hoping you would like, destroy the Romans and come in there and the wheat you know remember the wheat from the chaff remember that and Jesus doesn't do that he comes in humble meek he's practically no different from anybody else he heals people yes yes he says beautiful things he eats with sinners but there's no fire from heaven to consume the sinners or bear definitively a witness to the just in fact, nothing has changed in the, in the world with Jesus. He just goes around doing good. And so there was, for John, this ambiguity. Human life continued to be obscure, uh, 
the obscure mystery that, that man has to pursue in faith and in hope right into the, in the world's darkness. The Romans were still in charge. So clearly it was an utterly different character that, of Jesus that, 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 that John the Baptist imagined. He was there all those long nights in prison in the darkness and the gloominess of the cell, barely eating anything. It's as though the eclipse of God continued. He was expecting to be liberated by Jesus coming in there and knocking down the cells and throwing the soldiers like, I don't know, the Terminator or something like that, you know. But there was John lying there waiting. When's he showing up? I haven't even got a, any news from him. And uh, it was a bit, maybe, like a slap in the face to believers. So again, he sends messengers. Are you, uh, are you really him? Right? And this is uh, that he, the question that he asked at a rather anxious hour. But it's also sometimes a question that we asked as we send that in the midst of our world today, affected by so much secularism, a rejection of God, often a form of immoral behavior that is very contrary to the moral law. And these perspectives, these visions seem to be winning out in governments, in uh, in the media, in a secularized culture. Lord, I thought you were going to come and really reign. And uh, this is why the Lord is saying that our faith revolves around the basic confession. I believe in you, Jesus of Nazareth, as the meaning of the world and of my life. And you are making yourself present now during Advent. And the final task, of, you could say, of John the Baptist to reach the point of no longer demanding external, external visible, and unequivocal clarity, but instead of discovering God precisely in the darkness of this world. And of his own, and of our own life. And thereby, this is, well, this is what, what happened to John the Baptist in his prison. And he gave up his life for, as a testimony to he who came. Even though he didn't see his crucifixion, he practically didn't see any of his miracles, he didn't even see his resurrection. But he was a testimony. Hmm? to the coming of the Messiah. And then Cardinal Ratzinger has said this in one of his books, uh, in, indeed, we cannot see God as we see an apple tree or a neon sign. That is, we can't see him in a, per, in a purely external way that requires no interior commitment. We can see him only by becoming like him, by reaching the level of reality on which God exists. 
by being liberated from what is anti-divine. That is, the quest for mere pleasure, for mere enjoyment, possessions, gain, or just seeking life for ourselves. So we have to leap out of ourselves. This is what uh, the Lord is inviting us to do. And, and that's why, you know, we, we can ask ourselves, why during Advent do we light up so many lights in the streets and in the Christmas trees? Why, like, why, why do we put lights on a Christmas tree? Like, what's the point? I know in my family, we used to have real candles on the Christmas tree. And uh, it was, well, they were real candles. So if one kind of leaned over a bit too much, it could set the whole place ablaze. But we would have a big bucket of water nearby just in case. So now we put electric lights. But why? Well, the lamps that we light on the dark nights of this winter and in the on the Christmas tree, they... they they have two things. They are both comforting, but also a warning. They are comforting, a uh, comforting assurance that the light of the world has already begun to shine in the dark night of Bethlehem, and that the unholy night of man's sin has been transformed into the holy night of God's forgiveness. So the darkness that John the Baptist saw was now being transformed. And that's what that light represents. God forgives us. God loves us. He extends his forgiveness. But the light is also a warning. That's the second thing. It's also a warning. This light wants to keep shining. And, and will do so only if it shines in those who, as Christians, carry on Christ's work through the ages. Christ seeks to illumine the night of the world with his light by having us be lights in our turn. And his initial presence is to grow through us. So we have to be like the lights of God in the world. Through our good humor, through our faith. And so that's why during the holy night of Christmas, we hear again and again the words, Odie Christus Natus Est, Today Christ is born. And uh, this is an uh, invitation to begin again, really. And uh, it means that the Lord has already begun, and but has only just begun. And he wants to use us as, you could say, instruments of that presence. Let's see if we can do this, because, because when we light up that lamp in the world with our life, with our good humor, we can, we can make the world uh, come closer to God and help people to see that the world is not just material, it's not just physical, it's not just uh, what we can see, it's not just externals. And there's, there's a much richer world out there, which is the invisible world, which we can only see by faith. There's a marvelous 
saying by uh, the philosopher Blaise Pascal. He said, a single soul is worth more than the entire visible universe. A single soul. And if we could grasp this truth, that a single soul, a soul, you can't see it, but if we could grasp this, uh, we would be able to spell this out beautifully and our Lord would guide us uh, to that prophetic figure, which is John the Baptist, and we could too be those lights in the world. Let's ask our Blessed Mother to help us be those lights. You can think about that when you light the Christmas tree. She'll guide us in this task. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.